Hello, and welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined as always by Steve Hayes, David French, and even Jonah Goldberg. This broadcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And quick plug, after the election, November 9th and 10th, join us for our post-election event, whatsnextevent.com is where you can learn more about it. We'll have afternoon sessions on both days running from 1 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. And we'll return at 8 p.m. for an evening session with a wrap-up of the day's proceedings with the team from The Dispatch. Tickets for this two-day event are $100 and include a new complimentary subscription to The Dispatch. Right now, we've got interviews planned with Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Senator Ben Sass, and Senator Tim Scott. We'll be announcing more interviews and panel discussions in the coming weeks around the future of conservatism, governing under a Trump or Biden administration, foreign policy issues, and we'll take a deep dive into the results of the election, of course. So join us November 9th and 10th. You can check it out at whatsnextevent.com. Today, we're going to start with the Hunter Biden story, the New York Post, Twitter, and everyone involved. Then we'll go on to, is 2016 really the benchmark for how 2020 is going? A little bit on enthusiasm between Biden supporters and Trump supporters. And we'll wrap with a discussion of tomorrow night's debate. Let's dive in. David, coming to us live from California, you wrote your newsletter this week on the Hunter Biden story and the responsibility of journalism, social media, et cetera, when it comes to these types of reports. Yeah. What a mess. (laughs) So this was uh, apologized to the readers, uh, a long, uh, a long newsletter, because there's a lot of facets to this story. So I didn't really deal with the substance of the emails that much, um, mainly because I've already decided I'm not voting for Hunter Biden for president. Um, but the the really interesting aspect to me about this was the other the other sides. So there was a journalism side to this. The New York Post getting a hard drive from Rudy Giuliani that Rudy says is Hunter's hard drive. The social media response with Facebook throttling back the um, throttling back sort of the reach of the posts of the New York Post uh, pieces, Twitter blocking entirely, and then the political response with the FCC chairman um, vowing to undertake rulemaking to alter Section 230, which is this law in the Communications Decency Act that allows social media companies and indeed all internet providers to engage in content moderation without being liable for their user speech. And rather than rehash my, uh, rather than monologuing all the way through my piece, I wanted to to get y'all's thoughts. And first, uh, Steve, you're, you're the journalism school graduate. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk part one, the New York Post and the, the debut of the story. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think this presents a, a number of uh, challenges for reporters who want to cover this. The, you know, you wrote about it, I thought, very well in your your newsletter, and concluded that the Post shouldn't have published the story as as it was. The the real question 
I have uh, involves the provenance of the information. And the story that the New York Post itself told about where this computer slash hard drive came from and how they came into possession of it, to me, raised all sorts of red flags. Um, you know, it, it was tipped off by Steve Bannon. It came via Rudy Giuliani. Um, the stories that have been told about uh, the provenance of the information have changed both in contradictory statements from the shop owner himself and in, from Rudy Giuliani. I mean, Rudy Giuliani now has given many interviews about this and has said things like, I don't know if the information is true, but the American people should see it. Um, I don't, I, I think there's less than a 50-50 chance that this person, Andre Dirkketch, that I was working with is an active Russian asset or is, is a Russian a agent. Um, you know, these are the kind of, and, 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 you know, the shop owner had said Hunter Biden, he, he couldn't determine if Hunter Biden was the person who came in and dropped off the laptop with, while Giuliani had said, of course it was Hunter Biden and he came in and he was drunk. So providing all sorts of details about, about it. There are just all sorts of reasons to be really skeptical of the information. Now, what's emerged since, um, it, it's hard to know what's real and what's not. Having read all of the stories about what has supposedly been found on these hard drives, it's certainly the case that a number of them have the ring of truth. In some cases, they seem to add more right. information to what was already publicly known. Um, in other cases, they're presenting new information, but not information that would be wildly inconsistent with, I think, our basic assumptions about the contours of the story with Hunter Biden trying to, to cash in on his father's name and position. The problem is you can't know that these things are true. And uh, you've had a lot of our colleagues in the conservative media say, well, Hunter and Joe Biden haven't come out to deny this. And as you pointed out in your newsletter, that doesn't mean that the information is therefore true and verified. They would no doubt have been instructed not to come out and verify really any parts of the story, because then if there is information that's later uh, made public that's not true, you get into this whack-a-mole game of true and not true, and it further confuses who to believe and who not to believe. So basically, the way that we've handled this at the dispatch is we've tried to give people a sense of what's happening with the story without going into much detail about the actual allegations themselves. Um, if we can get to the point where we have confirmation of some of those allegations, and we've been asking as well, uh, we will report on them. If, if we know that they're true, we will report on them. If they're true, they're certainly newsworthy. And David, um, will you explain salting? Uh, it's, it's pretty common, for instance, in, in my world, on uh, when you're trying to catch someone who's leaking, for instance, but there's also the reverse. And that's the question around these, this hard drive, I think, is whether it was salted. Right. So essentially the state of play as we understand things while we're recording, I mean, this is a evolving story, is that there's been an anonymous source in the DOJ who has said that the FBI has Hunter's laptop. But of course, the New York Post did not do its story based on Hunter's laptop. It did its story based on a hard drive 
that is purported to be a copy of the information on Hunter's laptop that came from Rudy Giuliani. Uh, and as Steve said, some of the information certainly looks legit, but what we have seen in the past is uh, this thing, this concept that Sarah just said, salting. And that is when you take real information and you sort of salt into it, mix into it some fake information. And so there, this is something that happened in, I believe, the 2017 hack prior to the French presidential election. That's right. So that there's this, this mix of true information and false information. And it puts the target of the hack, as Steve said, into a difficult position that uh, if you validate some of the information and you admit that some is true, and then there's a damaging, what purports to be a damaging revelation in there, and you go, well, oh, but but that, that one's false. <laughs> well, you've already started the validation process, so it puts you in in a bind. And, and this is something that I was really interested in hearing Sarah's view on, and that is, okay, if you're a senior advisor uh, in the Biden campaign and you're huddled in a room with Joe Biden and you're very concerned about the, uh, you're, you're, you know, the, the New York Post has come, you know, the news is all over conservative media. It looks like sort of the mainstream media and progressive media is dismissing it and focusing more information on the New York Post. Um, you don't know exactly what's on the hard drive that Rudy has provided. Sarah, what are you saying? What are you telling Joe Biden? I don't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, now, the interesting part will be the debate tomorrow night and whether Kristen Welker, the debate moderator, finds a way to ask about it and what Joe Biden is prepared to say at that point. But he cannot, to your point, address the validity of any of the emails because they don't know what else is on that hard drive and they can assume that Rudy Giuliani or whoever else has saved some of the emails to release later, and they're not going to know whether those are real or not. Um, and so it, as you said, it puts them in a bit of a bind. But on the other hand, even if you knew the whole thing was real somehow, magically, I still don't think you address <laughs> it because from what uh, happened in 2016, where Hillary Clinton doesn't address it, and people are like, well, that's why she lost. She should have come out and made a bigger deal of the Comey, um, you know, the, the, the last Comey press conference <laughs> where he said that there were no new emails on the Wiener laptop. By the way, FBI laptops, I don't know, man. It's, this is feeling <laughs> recycled, the, the whole plot line. Um, but the big difference here is that the media, for better or worse, I think feels like they learned a lesson from 2016, the what about her emails meme of sorts, that they're just not willing to do that again four years later. And that inures very much to, to Joe Biden's benefit. And so by not addressing it, he lets the story be about process. And that is the best thing for Joe Biden right now is to leave this as a process story. Was the New York Post wrong? Right. Does Rudy Giuliani think his source is a Russian agent? Uh, even does the FBI have the laptop? All of that's fine because what we're not talking about because we don't know is was the relationship between Hunter Biden and Burisma and Joe Biden corrupt in some sort of either, you know, actually criminal way, which I'm not sure what the allegations would be around that yet, but 
you know, in just a gross way. That's not the conversation. Joe Biden shouldn't touch it. So, Jonah. Yeah, so, uh, oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, um, from this standpoint of sort of the Republican political world, um, salacious, unverified information good now? Um, it, it really depends on the day of the week. If it breaks on a Tuesday, it's good. If it breaks on a Thursday, it's bad. I'd say one thing that, I mean, I agree with Sarah about the process point, the keeping a process story. One of the things she left out though, was the, having the argument about whether Twitter was a censorious 1984 Orwellian force in our lives. Cause that conversation is actually good for Biden because it's not about Biden anymore. It's right. a major process story. And, and, it's catnip for all of the um, the right wingers who've convinced themselves that um, you know Section Two Thirty is actually a passage from the Nepper. What was it, David Nemer? The, the the and from Evil Dead, the book, the Nemeric Namakon. I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> Necromonicon. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking. Well, yeah, <laughs> Necromonicon. Yeah, okay. yes, the second I tried to say it, I lost it. But it, anyway, uh, listeners who know will know what I'm trying to get at. Anyway. <laughs> Um, I do think that, um, on the 2016 sort of replay thing, which I'm going to talk about in a little bit, um, the, the, as a political matter, I'm sort of with Steve, I'm, 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 I'm sure that there are a lot of the material, I'm not sure, I wouldn't be surprised if much of the material were in fact true. Um, in fact, it wouldn't surprise me if all of the material were true. I think it would be a massive earthquake of a story if it turned out that the copy of the hard drive that Giuliani gave the post is different is different from the hard drive of the actual laptop that the FBI has that could put Giuliani in jail and would be a huge story but we'll see um I don't think that's likely because Giuliani's not that dumb but you know it's it's an interesting thing I think the basic larger problem is for the Trumpers no one no one who hasn't voted yet and lots of people have voted is saying, Gosh, if this Hunter thing turns out to be true, I'm voting for Trump. Um, you know, one of the problems that Trump has is that he 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 laid all of this out. I was going to use a euphemism that you can't use anymore in the age of Tubin. Um, he laid all of this out for voters a year ago. And by doing so, he inoculated the story. Now it's just, it's a lot like the Russia collusion stuff. Like if another Russia story or another bad real estate story or a Mollyman story comes out for Trump, people are like, yeah, yeah, we kind of know that about him already. Right. And the same thing works with, with Hunter. People kind of know this about Hunter already. It's baked in. So the October surprise had little surprise value. And, um, and Trump has this problem of thinking that this is somehow the game changer when most of his, even if his advisors, apparently according to reporting, don't think it's the game changer. So it's, it's a it's it's a lot of you know St. Elmo's fire. It's a lot of you know it's a light show that actually doesn't do anything to you, um, and it does give you a preview though of the ugliness of the fights to come on Section Two Thirty on arguments about the mainstream media and all that kind of thing. But its political impact right now kind of feels negligible to me. Yeah, you know the big difference between the Hillary emails and this is aside from, well, you know, questions like, did Joe Biden tell the truth when he said, you know, he didn't know much about his son's business activities? Um, 
which, you know, would be sort of one of these sort of standard political spin lie evasion stories. The Hillary story was, is Hillary Clinton a criminal? <laughs> that that was the question right. at the heart of the Hillary Clinton email. It was, did Hillary Clinton mishandle highly classified information in such a way that would bring criminal liability? And there was even a highly unusual press conference from an FBI director that excoriated her handling of classified information. So anything that popped up in sort of phase two of that story raised the specter of, am I voting for somebody who could be indicted? Uh, which is so substantially different from, uh, am I voting for somebody whose son is exploiting his family name in an unscrupulous way for money, which is one of the oldest political stories in the book. And it's interesting that the New York Times ran its latest round of, or its latest story on Trump's business dealings and some of the de dealings of the Trump organization and his kids. And some of the details in that story, if you want to talk about financial transactions with shady characters involving the Trump organization's financial relationship with Chinese and Chinese interests are really... <laughs> In ordinary in an ordinary world would be e extremely surprising and shocking even. But it, again, as you said, all the emolument stuff and all of the Trump business relationships are now baked in. Um, so I, I agree with you. It feels like the Hunter stuff is baked in. Again, barring something completely unexpected um, in you know the next so, day or week. David, let me let me channel some of our um, listeners and ask you a question. Why are you inclined to treat the, that New York Times story as true and to talk about it and say that it's troubling? And you're not willing to do that with the New York Post story. Well, I think there's a couple of aspects on the New York Post story. One is when you're talking about the provenance of the information, you're talking about the, the part that the Post was transparent about, which is this came through Steve Bannon, who was indicted for fraud, Rudy Giuliani, who as as we know, has been working with and rather openly working with somebody the Treasury Department has designated as a Russian agent um, coming from, with a laptop coming from a person who I believe is legally blind and so couldn't identify Hunter Biden with a shifting story. Again, none of this means that the hard drive that they received is false, but what it means is that there needs to be rigorous, transparent efforts to detail the ways in which you tried to, to validate it. Um, the, the analysis you undertook on the hard drive. What, what steps did you do to make sure that this wasn't salted with other kinds of information? Instead, the story seems to be what we did was we, we got this hard drive from Rudy and here's some of the contents. Um, and... And that, that's my concern. It's not that, yeah, I know. And, and I heard, had several readers say, look, you know, whether you're a lawyer or whether you're a uh, journalist, you will get, sometimes you'll get truthful information from shady sources. I mean, heck, a, a whole lot yeah. of pro prosecutions in the United States of America are built around getting information from shady sources. And in fact, sometimes entire prosecutions are built around information from shady sources. But you verify, verify, verify. And, and the question I would have is, um, it, the, the available reporting indicates that the Post story was so shaky within the Post that the person who wrote it didn't want his name on the byline.
Now, again, that doesn't say that the information is false, but what it says is that the procedures to vet the information before they put the information into the public square were inadequate. And so that that's the problem I have in the sense that, you know, what, what ends up happening is if the information is adequate and it's true, and it could well be true, I agree with Jonah that if that if it departs from the hard drive the FBI has, Rudy's got a lot of explaining to do. Um, but if it is truthful, then you've kind of accidentally stumbled into the truth as opposed to what you should be doing, which is rigorously, transparently vetting the information and providing it for readers and, and, and providing information on your vetting for readers. The New York Times stories, when you read the New York Times stories, the level of detail involved in the reporting is an order of magnitude greater than in the, in the post story. And, and then one other final thing, um, Rudy himself sort of said why it is that we should be a little bit concerned. He said, you know, he, he took it to the post because he knew other outlets would spend time trying to contradict it, um, which is what they should do. And it's also apparent uh, that Fox News or been reported that Fox News passed on this. So yeah, it could very well be a hard drive that has accurate information in it, but the process that uh, the reporting process does not give one confidence that the New York Post did its due diligence, and that's important. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, ExpressVPN. When you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? You don't want random passersby looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Do you know that your internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon knows every single website you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. You can use ExpressVPN on all your devices. It works on everything, phones, laptops, even routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You just fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you believe your online activity is your business, Secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash freedom today. Use my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash freedom, and you can get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash freedom. All right, and with that, Jonah, why don't we move on to some 2016 news? Just kidding. <laughs> so, um, uh, as you brought up, I, mean, I, I as I, I'm kind of with you, Sarah, that it does feel like the screenwriters who've been really knocking it out of the park for the last three years are kind of going back to some old standby tropes, yeah. laptops, <laughs> you know, lock them up, yeah. all that kind of stuff. It feels like a like like maybe their normal cocaine supply in the writers' room has dried up, and they're they're working on second tier stuff. But um, more seriously. I think that the, you know, one of, and I, I know Steve and, and, and David probably, I don't know, but I would suspect have the same peeve for most of our lives. Every time since Vietnam, 
until the Iraq war, within hours after hostilities were launched in any way by a U.S. government, particularly if it was a Republican government, somebody in the New York Times would write, this is Vietnam again. This is a Vietnam quagmire. Um, it was like the only military, like the, up, up until the Iraq war, the only military metaphor or analogy that any mainstream journalist or gray beard pundit knew was either World War II or Vietnam quagmire. And no one would could talk about like the Spanish-American War or, you know, all sorts of other things that might actually be more apropos. I have the same feeling about 2016, whether it's on the left or on the right. Everybody is talking about 2016 as if it is the benchmark prism through which to view this election. And I understand it to a certain extent. I mean, 50 percent of the candidates from 2016 are running again. Um, 2016 is the most recent election. Uh, Donald Trump is literally trying to run the exact same campaign that he ran in 2016 with only a few variations um, down to lock him up chance and all of these kinds of things. But, but at the end of the day, I think the differences between 2016 and today are much greater than the similarities. And so I can list a whole bunch of them, but I am supposed to, I just remembered as I was about to do my John Belushi rant and throw myself out of my chair that I'm supposed to turn these questions to you. So, um, Sarah, how useful do you think 2016 is in understanding <laughs> this moment? Here's my hot take, if you will. Um, I think that if anything, it would mean that pollsters are underestimating Biden's support because if they get this wrong again, polling as an industry pretty much shrivels on the vine after this. And so when I look at these polling numbers, I sort of see that in the 2016 lens of how the experience in 2016 is coloring every single one of these polls coming out. And yet both sides also seem not to trust the polls, right? The Republicans that I've talked to, the Trump supporters, are convinced that Trump's about to win in a landslide to a person. I don't think I've talked to a single Trump voter yet who is wobbly on that because they think the polls are just so far off. And there was this interesting interview with a pollster in National Review who believes that Trump is going to probably win. Uh, he says Pennsylvania is a little close, but that otherwise, you know, he sees Trump winning all these states and that he thinks the polls are pretty far off because of his own sort of polling methodology. Um, and I, there's just not a whole lot of data to back that up. If anything, I think Jonah's like, you're just making a really interesting point and something I think will be a huge moment after the election. If Biden, if the polls are correct and Biden wins by the amount we're seeing, it's going to be, why did anyone think this was close? 2016 was not actually the model for 2020. I think the best example of this is what I hear from Republicans and Democrats, which is this idea that Maybe Trump voters just aren't answering their phone. And so pollsters are getting sort of fooled into talking to the wrong people. And, you know, who answers their phone anyway? And these people are, I don't know, like hermits living in a cave or something. Uh, and Trump has mocked all these fake polls. And so they're just less likely to respond. If that were the case, and this is true for a lot of these theories about the polls, if that were the case, we'd see some evidence in the data. You would see, for instance, in this case, Republicans with a lower response rate 
than Democrats. When these pollsters call, they get about a 5% response rate. And so it would be really easy to see that, you know, they're calling a thousand Republicans and they're expecting about a 5% response rate on that, but somehow they're only getting a 1% response rate. But from the pollsters I've talked to, in fact, the opposite is proving true. Republicans compared to their previous performance on response rate are a little bit more likely to talk to pollsters. They want to, you know, get their feelings out there. And so, and again and again, I hear people saying, but 2016, and again and again, when you look at the data this time, there's just not a lot to back up that this is 2016 again. Yeah, and so my point, I mean, I'll go to Steve, but my, my point is, it's not just the polling thing, right? Every pollster I talk to, everybody who I know who follows polls, the pollsters have all sort of sworn a blood oath that they've fixed this under polling in state polls about non-college educated whites, which was the main source of the discrepancies in the state polls, which were the ones that were basically wrong in 2016, um, not the national polls anyway. Um, but it's not just the polls. There's just a huge difference between an incumbent Donald Trump, who's a known quantity, and a challenger Donald Trump, who's an unknown quantity compared to Hillary Clinton, who's like the most known quantity in American life. I was going to say, I think the bigger difference is between Hillary Clinton, running against Hillary Clinton and running against Joe Biden in terms of uh, who you're able to get to take a leap of faith on Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, Hillary Clinton was despised by large numbers of Republicans and large numbers and of Democrats and independents. And it's a, yes. again, you can just go down a very long list of things and say... If you're looking for historical analogies that apply to right now, 2016, yeah, obviously it's going to be on the list because it was the most recent one and it involves the incumbent president and yada, yada, yada. But, you know, I don't know, is, is 1992 a more relevant one? You know, uh, one term president knocked out of office. I and mean, Steve, I mean, are you a, are, are, are you a, 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 an acolyte at the golden calf of 2016 punditry? <laughs> I'm not, but I, I guess the way that I would the way that I would put it is it's important to learn the lessons of 2016 without necessarily looking to 2016 as the framework or the prism through which we view all events in 2020. I mean, you know, 2016, as we've talked about here, um, as we, I think probably all of us have written about at one point or another, was a black swan event. It was a series of, of uh, things that were unexpected that turned out uh, to benefit Donald Trump in the final analysis. In, in you know, and it was 80,000 votes in three states. In, in particular, um, and this goes to the point about Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump and Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, Trump being then a relatively unknown quantity and Trump now we having four years of looking at his presidency. Late breaking voters who didn't like both candidates broke for Donald Trump in 2016. That seems highly unlikely to happen again here for a couple of reasons. One, voters who you know, are undecided. And, you know, I think Sarah's made the point a number of times that there really just aren't that many of them, but there, there are some, and those who remain um, don't have, the, there, there isn't the same level of distaste for Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Joe Biden is seen widely by the electorate as much less offensive than Hillary Clinton was four years ago, for good reason, I think. Um, and the, the second point is, 
we, we know what Donald Trump would do now. You know, at the time, Donald Trump was was saying all these things in the last few days of the the campaign. He had campaigned to blow up Washington. I think he, he sort of channeled a, a broad sentiment in the electorate, certainly among Republicans who thought it was time for some disruption and couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. Now, he he was supposed to be this disruption. And in some ways, he, he, he was that disruption. But I think for some Republican voters, they look and say, okay, what kind of disruption? So I guess that's why I think it's it's important to to you know, learn the lessons of 2016. And there were some interesting and important lessons, but I don't think we have to look at everything now as, as the, through a 2016 frame. David. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you look back at 2016 and you look at the data that was incoming in 2016. um, I, it's funny you're, you're talking about, and Sarah, you're talking about how if, um, if the, the polling is sort of borne out in 2020, a lot of people say, well, why why was everybody white knuckling this? This seemed pretty obvious in, in hindsight. But when 2016, I think one of the obvious questions that comes up when you sort of take another look at the data was, why was everyone so completely confident that Hillary was going to win? The polling, the national polling was relatively close uh, and that and the margins in the Midwest had closed between t- 2008 and 2012. In McCann, uh, Romney did a lot better in, in the Midwest. He still lost, but he did better in the Midwest than McCain had pretty substantially. And so there were some signs there. I mean, the race was closer. There had been some Midwest narrowing, but everyone was fighting the last war in 2016 that there was this blue wall. I mean, I remember, we all remember the blue wall, the electoral college blue wall that suddenly become after one race, a red wall. Uh, I'm starting to think it might not be a wall (laughs) for anybody right now. (laughs) And, and so I think in 2016, there was a lot of confidence in the predictions born out of the last wars, which were 2008 and 2012, that was really misplaced in that circumstance. Um, I, you know, a lot of folks who are who support the president on Twitter are having great fun right now pointing out how similar the polls are uh, in some of these swing states uh, to right now as they were in 2016. And, you know, it, that that does signify the polling miss in the national poll. I mean, in the state polling in some of these states, but the national polling picture uh, is fundamentally different. And and, you know, the the idea that Trump could overcome, say, a nine-point gap or an eight-point gap in the Electoral College, I think that would be, that's just fiction. That that just cannot happen. Um, but yeah, I think 2016 confidence was partly born of fighting the 2012 war, refighting the 2012 war. And then I think there was just this sort of psychological thing that a lot of people had that sort of said, Donald Trump can't win. He no. This is just something that can't yeah. happen. And so it really colored people's attitudes. And the last thing on this I'll say is when you have these much closer polling numbers, um, you know, three, two, four points, these much closer polling numbers, that's when I think these, um, you know, these, these reports about intensity and these reports about enthusiasm can start to kind of matter I think when you have like a nine point gap or a 10 point gap, but the the core base 
uh, is still enthused. That enthusiasm number isn't as important, uh, but it's funny, Steve, when you're you're talking about uh, 19 or the the is this a one term like the 1992 election? I remember the closing argument for Bush, and correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't it? Weren't you seeing pop up annoy the media, reelect President Bush? Um, and yep. and that you know that a that shows how long the war against the media has been going in Republican circles. Um, but that was not a closing argument that worked. And a lot, that seems to be kind of the core <laughs> of, of the Trump closing argument, which is attack the media, reelect Trump. And with that, and what a great segue, David, thank you. <laughs> uh, we'll move on to my topic, which is enthusiasm. And I think that there's been this assumption that the enthusiasm is on Trump's side. And to David's point, maybe it's only among this 32% or so of his base, but nevertheless, they are, you know, revved up, ready to go for their boat parade type thing. But I have three nuggets, information nuggets that I want to discuss that Mm. maybe the enthusiasm isn't quite where we thought it was. Hmm. The first, the town hall. We didn't get to talk about the town halls last week, you know, in lieu of a debate. Biden does his town hall on ABC. Trump does his town hall on NBC, which then also gets to show it on MSNBC and CNBC. Well, the ratings came back and Biden's town hall averaged about, you know, just under a million viewers more than Trump's town hall, even though Trump's town hall showed on three channels and Biden's town hall only showed on one. You know, in my newsletter, I explained that I thought that this wasn't maybe as huge a deal as some people made it out to be because uh, NBC basically was sorry that they agreed to a town hall that abutted Biden's pre-scheduled town hall at the same time. And so they basically didn't advertise for it. But even so, I mean, back in 2016, you didn't need to advertise if you had Donald Trump doing the Donald Trump show. Uh, People just flocked to it. And that didn't happen this time. Also, an interesting note on that was that ABC was better able to make more money on their event than NBC, roughly based on someone looking at the um, ads and the ad space that ABC was able to sell. Okay, second bucket, uh, first-time voters. As of right now, 7.3 million infrequent and first-time voters have cast their ballots, which is two and a half times the number of ballots by those types of voters four years ago. Now, uh, another caveat on this one, it could be the case that these are people who would have voted later, but because there's been so much media attention, they like are really ginned up about early voting. So we're just replacing later votes with early votes. If so, we're going to start to see a drop off in the early voting numbers here next week real soon. We haven't seen that yet. Okay. Third bucket is the money bucket. Joe Biden outraised Donald Trump $200 million in September, but now we also have the cash on hand bucket, which is uh, the Biden campaign has $177 million and the Trump campaign has $63 million. That's a three to one edge. What that means is that Trump has had to spend a ton of money to raise money. And one uh, stat that I saw was that he, for his small dollar Uh, fundraising machine was spending 77 cents to raise a dollar. 
That is a wildly high number and tells you that the enthusiasm isn't there. They have list fatigue. They're trying to hit their people and they're just not seeing much return from it. Okay. Those are my three buckets. Uh, Steve, I know you were paying attention to the money bucket. What do you make of my money bucket enthusiasm argument? I mean, that's an incredible number. And while it's not very good for the Trump campaign, it's very good for the people who are uh, working for the Trump campaign, for the people who are making money off the Trump campaign, it should be noted. Look, I think I think this in some ways is is the most interesting of your buckets. Um, Can we just talk for two seconds about how she went from nuggets to buckets without ever explaining <laughs> how? But okay, anyway, I'm sorry. The nuggets are in the buckets. That was hanging unspoken. <laughs> yeah, buckets of nuggets, maybe I don't know. Yeah. I mean, anyway, go on. the nuggets okay. are in um, the buckets. The I th- I think, it, and we talked about this pretty early on. One of the reasons that the that the fundraising gap is significant between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, beyond just what they have to spend, is what it tells us about enthusiasm, and in particular those small dollar donors. And I, I find this a, a pretty interesting barometer of where the enthusiasm is at this point uh, distributed in the race. I don't, I'm not under the impression that there are lots of people clamoring for a Joe Biden presidency or, you know, willing to walk over hot coals or lining up boat parades for Biden. You know, the, the, the miles long car parades that we've seen over the past few weekends for Trump. There is, there is a, a, a disparity in the kind of, positive enthusiasm for the two candidates. I think obviously what Joe Biden is benefiting from is the negative enthusiasm about Trump. And you have voters who, you know, Trump's disapproval ratings, depending on your polls, 48%, 52%, sometimes as high as 54%. And the strong disapprovals are not much lower than that. So you have people who are passionately uh, opposed to Donald Trump, who are willing to do just about anything to get him out of office. And I think we're seeing that in these numbers, both at the presidential level with the the numbers of small dollar donors giving to Biden's campaign, but also in, in these Senate races where you're seeing uh, fundraising gaps of six to one and seven to one when you're looking at just the, the actual campaign fundraising, which is indicative more closely of, of low dollar fundraising. And so they they want to get rid of Donald Trump, but they also want to get rid of anybody who's seen as supporting Donald Trump. I mean, that's why Lindsey Graham's opponent, Jamie Harrison, has raised so much money. Um, I think it's why Democratic Senate candidates have done so well, or these low dollar donors. And I do think that while it's not you know an exact proxy for, for voter enthusiasm, it does tell us something about voter enthusiasm. And there's no doubt, I mean, we should make clear, there's no doubt that Trump supporters, whatever percentage of the base we, we want to say are the hardcore Trump supporters, are about as intense uh, of political actors as I've seen since I've been covering this for 25 years. Um, but I think they are mirrored and outnumbered on the other side when you're talking about people who oppose Donald Trump. Jonah? Yeah, I mean, not to you know, uh, exploit this for my own benefit, but this just proves my point about 2016. 
Um, <laughs> you know, all of these things that we're talking about, right? So the top, you know, as David noted earlier, all the top line numbers show the similarities in these battleground polls and whatever between now and 2016. But all the stuff that you're talking about, these are just very different situation than 2016. The, um, you know, I my first column of the week was on this i'm convinced that you know john Podorts convinced me a while ago that liberal media is losing its mind about because of its 2016 phobia and panic um and um um and they're so afraid because they're the they're the the scalded dogs from they're like reek from game of thrones they've just been so abused and so lied to so many times they don't know what's the truth anymore and they're so scared they think it's 2016 again um and so they don't let anyone talk about jinxing it they don't like joe biden ran away with the, deb the first debate won that thing by any metric and the immediate response from all the liberals was no more debates right when when do you <laughs> when does your guy win a debate and your first reaction is let's not do that again um i mean it just it's a weird situation and i think getting to your point i think there is this I don't, I'm sure there's a German word for it. There's this negative enthusiasm, this angst that is at work here. And so the if you're looking for enthusiasm numbers, the idea that you would look to boat parades and airport rallies rather than the fact that in every state where they're reporting, basically, except for, I guess, Florida, almost every state where they're reporting partisan ID in terms of early voting, Democrats are, are voting two or sometimes three to one. To, to Republicans, that's a measurement of enthusiasm too. And um, but Democrats are voting based on fear of Trump, and Republicans are voting to the extent that they're voting for Trump on love of Trump. And I think these are just very different dynamics. And um, and I think that the 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 enthusiasm thing generally uh, is necessary but not sufficient for what Trump needs. And I know that we're all supposed to genuflect to Sarah's it's all about turnout now, and she's probably right about that. But it can't just be a turnout election when you have fewer voters in your column. You should be doing something to get more voters in your column. Well, that goes to a whole series of strategy decisions that the Trump <laughs> campaign never chose to make or that the candidate was unable to make. David, last question to you on this. Um, I think that the, so I talked about one of the things that we'll talk about if the polls are right and that Biden wins in Jonah's column, if you will. But I think another one will be these first-time voters. I think if we continue to see first-time voters showing up in record numbers and that that, you know, really turns the tide, so to speak, if they are voting at twice as high as they did in any previous election, that that will be a fascinating moment in American politics where a whole bunch of people who never felt like they needed to vote before suddenly felt like, nah, I got to raise my hand this time. Yeah, you know, and in a way, again, if you're sort of looking at it like uh, this frame of when this is all over, some of us, some people might say, oh yeah, that was obvious all along. The first time voter number in an interesting way could be as well, because this was the first time in a long time in American history where politics was just always being talked about, constant bombardment of political news. I mean, uh, you know, you think about 2020, uh, we've had an impeachment, we've had a pandemic, we've had an economic meltdown, we've had uh, urban unrest. So in, in one way, you would look at that first-time voter number and you'd say, well, of course. I mean, of course. Uh, 
The other thing that I that I think is interesting, going back to what Jonah was saying, is, you know, the the media isn't just you know the members of the media tend to be on the left, and they don't just tend to be sort of kinda on the left. They tend to be pretty left, uh, especially the the younger cohort. And Joe Biden was not their guy. He was not their guy. And so in a lot of ways, it feels like what you have is the combination of the flashback to 2016 with the I sort of this idea that Joe Biden, Joe, you mean Joe Biden is the guy that's going to, you know, that's going to take out Trump? And then also, I do think there's some background anxiety about Biden's age. So rather than having, say, a young candidate who excites the base and excites the media, they would be saying, yeah, let's debate again. Here's our champion stepping into the arena. But a lot of these guys just weren't excited about Biden to begin with and still can't quite wrap their minds around an idea of a Joe Biden wave election. What? Are you kidding me? But he had a wave election primary. I mean, he he mopped the floor with the with the competition after the South Carolina primary. Just it wasn't even close to close. It was not the same with, as Hillary's 2016 primary. It was not the same as Obama's 2008. So, you know, I do wonder if part of this is an artifact of a actual sort of the white knuckling, a actual concerns about, say, Biden's age. And B, he just was never their guy to begin with. And so the idea that this guy, the guy that they didn't really get, they didn't get excited about is somehow going to swamp Donald Trump. What? That doesn't make sense. And let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, the Bradley Foundation. Americans are navigating through several unanticipated crises this year. We the People, a Bradley speaker series, offers insights and ideas on the current challenges we face from some of the remarkable organizations the Bradley Foundation supports. Visit bradleyfdn.org liberty to watch our most recent episode, which features Justin Danhoff, speaker on the dangers of shareholder activism. Danhoff is general counsel for the National Center for Public Policy Research, as well as director of the center's Free Enterprise Project. In this episode, he addresses the influence of environmental, social, and governance issues on society, retirement security, and free enterprise. The discussion sheds light on how activists are advancing social and political change through American corporations. That's Bradley with an L-E-Y at the end, fdn.org slash liberty to watch the video. New episodes will debut weekly, so come back often and subscribe to their YouTube channel to be notified whenever a new one is posted. So before we move on to Steve's topic, I have two more nuggets for you, Jonah. Uh, <laughs> nuggets. I like nuggets better than buckets. I just, I just no, do. the nuggets. Oh, I, I, I prefer a bucket of KFC to a nugget. <laughs> what about a bucket of Chick-fil-A? Wings. Right. Wings. Blasphemy in <laughs> blasphemy incoming. I prefer both Kentucky Fried Chicken and Popeyes and Popeyes and even Zaxby's to Chick-fil-A. Wrong. Whoa. Oh my God. Wrong opinion. Wow. wow. No wonder wow. you're taking heat from all sides of the sort of evangelical. That world. really brought <laughs> the, the mood down, David. <laughs> wow. 
Well, anyway. Uh, you could wear a Margaret Sanger t-shirt and get fewer hits. You know, my gosh. All right. On these first-time voters, they often when you talk to people who didn't vote and you ask them why they didn't vote, the number one response is, it won't make any difference. Like, not only does my vote not matter, but between these two candidates, it doesn't matter. They're both politicians. I don't know about tax policy or whatever. Like, it's all within this, like, small margin. They don't care about me anyway. And so when you see these first-time voter numbers, what that means is that the message of the last four years to them was, oh, there's a really big difference now between these two candidates. And so it actually matters to me which one of them wins because it will affect my life. That's pretty fascinating. And you see that in the registration numbers. So last week, in one week in Pennsylvania, 50,000 new people were registered to vote. I just think that's a mind-blowing number. Right now in Travis County, which is the Austin area, 97% of eligible voters are registered to vote. Whoa. Wow. So, and mind you, the registration numbers, Republicans have also been doing really well in registration numbers. Those first-time voters are on both sides. It's just that the country sees this as a really stark choice. So, with that lead-in, Steve... Let's talk about the debate tomorrow night. Yeah, there's a debate. Um, my question <laughs> to you, uh, we saw after the last debate that Donald Trump didn't do well. Um, his public polling, the, the Insta polls said he didn't do well. The public polling suggested he didn't do well. And almost immediately you started talking privately to Republican pollsters and strategists who said that they'd seen this plunge. Um, not just in Donald Trump's numbers, but in the generic ballot numbers when pollsters ask, do you prefer Republicans or Democrats? In the generic ballot numbers for Republicans. So my question is simple. What will Donald Trump have to do tomorrow night to be judged the winner, um, both in the sort of post-debate discussion on television in the media, but also among the electorate, number one. And number two, that can this debate matter at all in determining the outcome? Jonah. Uh, so I don't think there's anything Trump can do that will get, say, MSNBC and CNN to say he won. Right. The only way that they will say anything like that is if Biden has a sufficiently bad night that they have to say that Biden lost. And what that would look like depends on what scenarios you want to spin out. Um, that said, I have this theory, this wacky theory, because I, I, I've become so convinced that one of the most remarkable things about Donald Trump and the Republican party generally, and big chunks of the democratic party is how determined people are to do the opposite of what is actually their political interest. <laughs> um, Trump has just been going ballistic for a while now about this, uh, you know, he refused to do the remote debate. My argument is a remote debate would have helped him because uh, he, it would have kept him from interrupting. It would have kept him from being rude. It would allow it would have forced Biden to talk into a screen, which he's bad at for extended periods of time without being rescued by Donald Trump's interruptions, which often benefited Biden because it made Biden look like a victim, made Trump look like a jerk. And it kept Biden from actually having to complete a whole thought. But Trump didn't like the idea of the Zoom of the re remote event. And so 
can't call it Zoom because it conjures all sorts of images. So uh, now, uh, especially. Yeah, exactly. It's this. It's it's, uh, it's, it's the uh, event that shall not be named. Uh, BT and AT. So <laughs> anyway, uh, the I think that the mute microphone thing, if Trump actually obeyed it, would help him. I think Biden is his own worst enemy when given an opportunity under pressure to give long answers. Um, not because he's that terrible about it. It's just that the odds of Biden actually having the meltdown bonus moment the Trump campaign wants can only happen if you let Biden talk. But if Trump keeps shouting the system is rigged every time his microphone is, is muted and shouts over it, uh, it's going to be a nightmare for him. And... Um, you know, everyone's, mo you know, Trump is mocking Biden for taking four days off um, to prepare for the debate and hold this four day lid thing. I get why you would mock him for it. You know, if I were running against him, I'd mock him for it. But it's kind of a flex move when you're like 10 points up going into the last debate. And the whole strategy for all along has been, been to make Trump the center of attention. So I think going into this debate, well, I guess what, to an actually answer your question, Trump would have to pivot to being presidential in the last 13 days of the presidential race. And I, I would not bet heavily on that. Sarah, one of the things Jonah said in that long response was <laughs> Trump should have Trump should have done the Zoom call because it would have kept him from being rude. Is Jonah right? <laughs> <laughs> that it would have helped or that it would have kept him from being rude. I'm not sure that either is right. Uh, so It would have helped restrain him. Yeah, so I, I think that it would, have, uh, it would have upped the ratings because people would have sort of found it fascinating in its own way and they would have wondered how Trump would have responded to that. Um, but it didn't happen, so is what it is. And we saw the ratings of the town halls. So we kind of have some indication. I think that the more interesting question is whether Trump being presidential for the last 13 days, as Jonah suggested, would actually help him at this point. And I have a theory that it won't, that it wouldn't, that that cake's so baked that even if he did it, everyone would think, everyone would know that it's so short term that that's not who he is, that it would come off as, if anything, either silly or inauthentic, and it wouldn't really move the needle much. My theory is that the best thing that Trump can do is continue to be sort of his pugnacious self, but put, like, actually, like, rifle shot that toward Biden instead of the shotgun approach of the last debate where it was just things flying, spittle everywhere. And instead, just keep repeating, Joe, are you going to pack the court? And then stop talking, let Joe Biden flim-flam around for a little bit, and then when he's done and says, oh, my time is up, which uh, to Jonah's point, he doesn't like giving long answers. He didn't do well in those primary debates. He would just say, oh, my time is up and stop talking. And so every single time, Donald Trump should refuse to answer every question, which, yes, will annoy the media and they'll talk about how he lost. But each time he should say, Joe, are you going to pack the court? And make that the debate. I don't think that it, I don't think anything in the debate, by the way, could win him this election. But at least that has a chance of showcasing Biden's only real flaw 
at this moment in the campaign, or only real weakness, I guess, is a better way to phrase it. He's uncomfortable not answering the question. He's not prepared to answer the question. So make the whole debate about that. If, if Joe Biden comes to the debate tomorrow night without a better answer on packing the court, it will be campaign malpractice, which doesn't necessarily mean that it, that it won't happen. David, before you <laughs> answer that question, I want to just go back a, briefly to the to the last debate. One of the things that was surprising to me, I didn't think Trump had as horrendous a performance as any of you did in the immediate um, discussion that we had right after the debate. Um, I thought he was basically the kind of Donald Trump that we've seen throughout his presidency. I mean, it was like Donald Trump at the rallies. I mean, he was actually, I would argue, in some ways more disciplined than Donald Trump at the rallies. There were fewer crazy conspiracy theories than we get from Donald Trump at a typical rally. Uh, he, he was arguably better than he was during the White House coronavirus briefings. Um, didn't say as many outrageous things during the debate, as he used to say during those briefings. Why, David, do you think that last debate had the pretty significant impact it appears to have had? And then what can he do to avoid that kind of outcome again? Well, he was, he showed the aspect of himself that I think is least attractive to a lot of people, which is oddly enough, not the wild conspiracy theories or, you know, the 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 disinfectant ultraviolet you know the craziness of some of the of the briefings it was just meanness it was just pure there was nothing sort of like oh you know that's our crazy donald nothing that would make you feel sort of this bizarre sense of oh he's just you know stream of consciousness he doesn't really mean it um it was just it was just a a, a basic blatant attempt at bullying and there's just not that many Americans who enjoy watching a bully try to bully somebody. I, I think it's just as simple as that. That This was an aspect, a side of him that is least attractive to everybody except his hardest core supporters who, of course, relish the bullying and, and like the bullying. Um, and so I think that when you distill it down to that, it was just that this was the aspect of Donald Trump that was least attractive to people. There was Nothing about it that you, you could kind of wave off as, oh, he's stream of consciousness, just whatever he comes in his, in his mind, he says that he doesn't really mean it. He felt like he meant it and he was angry and he was bullying and he was, he was uh, trying to be cruel. And that brings me to this debate. I think that the question, are you going to pack the court? Are you going to pack the court? Are you going to pack the court? Is a way that you could channel Trump's aggression in a way that could really flummox Biden, really put him on the defensive and frankly, he hadn't had great answers for this question, even in front of softball questioning. And so I do think that that would be a, a opportunity for him. Here's the trap for Trump. He's obviously quite exercised about the Hunter Biden story. I mean, this is the thing that's like, you know, it seems like he feels like he's his ace in the hole and he's very angry. Um, you know, he's one uh, at the Twitter censorship. He's very angry that it isn't gaining more traction. So I think his opportunity is to badger Biden about court packing, which is a very substantive thing that makes even non-Trump supporting Republicans very nervous. His trap is to badger Joe Biden about Hunter Biden. 
which is something that, say, MAGA Twitter loves and parts of, you know, the conservative media entertainment complex love, but I don't think has traction really anywhere else and can really encroach into um, personal territory that could give Biden an opening like he had in the first debate to basically say, look, my son has problems. I love my son. And and to really flip that around on it. But I think Hunter Biden is the trap for, for Trump and that court packing is the opportunity for Trump. And with that, let's do our last topic, Halloween costumes. David, what will you be going as this year? I will be going as, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I I think about that. um, I would say, you know, I would say that I think about the Halloween costume, maybe um, the middle of the day on Halloween, because what I do is I don't actually, I only, I have a 12-year-old and she's really going towards the end of the trick-or-treating. But one of us dresses up in a costume and sits on the porch to welcome the trick-or-treaters. So I, I, I think the last time I did that, I went as a Sith Lord and it was pretty glorious. Perhaps that's the better question. Jonah, what did you go as last year? Uh, and so I, full disclosure, I can send pictures. Uh, my daughter takes Halloween very, very, very seriously. And um, I would show pictures of our the front of our house, except I don't really need the world to know exactly what my house looks like um, for various and sundry reasons. Um, when my daughter started to get out of costume age, she also got into theatrical makeup phase. And she can do like broken glass jutting out of your forehead, broken bones, she uses chicken bones and, and, and all sorts of stuff to make it look like bones are jutting out of your skin and that kind of thing. And anyway, for years, the Goldbergs went as different kinds of zombies. We were military zombies. I think our first year we were flight attendant Ooh. zombies or I was a captain and my wife and daughter were flight attendants. Um, uh, we've gone as f- football football player and cheerleader zombies. Um, uh, the last time I got dressed up, I think it was two years ago, um, I want to say I was either a prince or mad hatter zombie and my daughter was Cinderella zombie with a giant thing of glass jutting out of her throat. Um, so, uh, it's, 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 it's dark around here. I got to tell you, it's dark and serious. And we take Halloween deadly seriously. around. Do the quadrupeds dress up? Uh, we try, we, we usually have a window of about 43 seconds where we can get them in a costume before they tear it apart. Um, and we try to get a picture, but, uh, generally they're opposed to it. (laughs) Steve, what's been your best Halloween costume? Um, I can't tell you, but my, uh, (laughs) my... My, um, I don't have it. You're going as Jeffrey Tubin. I don't you? have anything <laughs> nearly as interesting as, as Jonah. I think my, my youngest will pick my Halloween costume this year. And there is a 100% chance that it will be some character from Frozen. <laughs> I vote Olaf. <laughs> Olaf would be good. Olaf is in better shape than I am though. So that might be hard to pull off. <laughs> And Sarah? So this year is our first year with something to dress up because the cats, my cats, um, have declined to dress Uh up for Halloween for the last 13 years. So we are, I have a whole plan 
But as of right now, the brisket will be going as Baby Yoda. Mm -hmm. And my husband will be the Mandalorian. Nice. And I don't know, maybe I'll be like the little, you know, coffee mug that that Baby Yoda is holding. I don't know. I'll be the one taking the picture. Is the you truth. don't want the golden bikini Leia outfit? <laughs> you know, well, you know, Sarah, the the Mandalorian has a female companion, and yes, but the outfit is she's like particularly... a mixed martial artist. Yeah, as am I, David. As am I. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's this, the outfit isn't very specific. You know, it's like a black hoodie, basically, and tights. Like, yeah, I guess I could dress as that, but everyone's going to be like, "Are you a mime?" I don't know. Mimes are terrifying. <laughs> I was in a miming troupe, uh, Jonah, in eighth grade. That makes me feel unsafe. Not <laughs> it was weird. A- Mimes and clowns in the last quarter century have gone from being like joyful kids things to super creepy, you know, uh, call the police kind of things. I, uh, it's, yeah. It's interesting. Rhymers, mimers. We were a big deal. We were all the rage. So, Steve, are we doing a Dispatch Live tomorrow night? We are doing a Dispatch Live tomorrow night. Uh, Just like the last post-debate Dispatch Live, we will jump on probably five or ten minutes after the end of the debate. Um, You can find information on our website about the Dispatch Live. And um, for subscribers or free listeners uh, to the Morning Dispatch, we have links in there today and we'll have links in there tomorrow. This is this one is open to everyone. It's not necessary to be a member to join us for the Dispatch Live uh, post-debate version. So encourage you to join us, uh, get your friends. You know, if you're tired, if, if you feel like you know what you're gonna get by watching the post-debate reaction from partisans on television with Republicans, regardless of what happens, saying that Donald Trump did a good job and Democrats, regardless of what happens, saying Joe Biden did a good job. And you want uh, to hear from a group of people who will actually tell you just what they think without measuring or thinking about how how it will play. Um, We're a pretty good place to do that. Also, I will tell you from experience that most of the people on TV are sober after the debates. And that will not necessarily be the case here. I will be sober. Honestly, if the debate is like the last one, I will not be. I, that was awful. Like my head hurts so much. So yeah, that's my Sarah guarantee. I may have to step in. I'll be ready. I'll be ready. I will do. I will once again stay off of Twitter, and I will not have my uh, and any wine until we start the dispatch live. Jonah, what promises are you making to our listeners? <laughs> I I promise that when it starts, people will be able to see me. <laughs> Nothing, everything else is is just, contingent no, upon circumstances. Just, just, just. <laughs> <laughs> no. it'll no, it'll be great. It'll be fun. I promise to be mostly sober when it starts. All right, listeners, you heard it here. We'll see many of you tomorrow night. Enjoy your debate watching. We'll see you again next week. 